0: Hey guys, good to see ya. Sorry, we have to have the side up; otherwise, we can't sing. So that's why. Of course, now we're not singing. If we if we want to put it up, we can. Or down, sorry. Too noisy. Okay. All right. Yeah. So far in this series, we've looked at shifting to a more communal understanding of our identity of life in Christ, of God, of freedom, and of discipleship. So uh, as Western Christians, we can be way too individualistic and we need to understand that Christianity is very communal. So we've talked about all those issues and we've talked about some practical outcomes, like we've talked about making decisions in community. We've talked about uh, finding refuge in community and some of the patterns that keep us from community. We've talked about organising our lives around community and the whole way we set up our lives with community in the centre. We've talked about singing and music as a key expression of community. Uh, We've talked about finding freedom in community, particularly through friendship, which which is wonderfully freeing. Uh, And in Disciple last week, we talked about the importance of being vulnerable so that people can see our uh, progress. So um, I hope all of those different practical outcomes you can work on in your DNA group, maybe look look back over the talks, listen to them. Uh, talk about them in your gospel communities, uh, reflect on those kinds of things as we strive to be the community that God is calling us to be. So today, the last talk, and it's moving towards a more communal understanding of mission. So, the church is increasingly finding itself on the margins of society. The marriage equality issue has highlighted this. Uh, We're out of step with our culture. In fact, many people are hostile to Christianity and they don't, just view our, they don't just view our views on sexuality or marriage or the uniqueness of Christ as wrong, but increasingly people see that our views are immoral or they're oppressive. And there's this kind of great reversal of values that is happening in our culture. And in his first letter, Peter says, don't be surprised by this. Uh, this is actually normal for Christians. And in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, he says, Dear friends, don't be surprised by the fiery ordeal that has come upon you to, to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. <laughs> Peter is writing to Christians on the margins of society, facing the kind of indifference and hostility that we face, They aren't being imprisoned. They're not being thrown to the lions. That will happen later. Instead, they're facing hostility and slander from their neighbours. Chapter 2, verse 12, they accuse you of doing wrong. In chapter 3, he talks about people speaking maliciously against you. And in chapter 4, he says that people are surprised that you don't join in with their wild, reckless living and they heap abuse on you. So, that's a very similar kind of experience to what we're experiencing in modern Western society. So, I want to draw out some principles for mission from the letter of 1 Peter. Hope you can see in your Bibles, and I'm going to be jumping around. Four principles for mission in an increasingly hostile world. Firstly, our identity as exiles. Look at 1 Peter. Chapter 1, verse 1 is highly read Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Pontus, Pontus Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Or we'll look at chapter 2, verse 9 But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you might declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage wage war against your soul, live such good lives among the pagans, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Peter describes his readers as God's elect exiles in the world, or chapter 2, verse 11, I urge you as foreigners and exiles, or strangers and immigrants. In other words, these readers are to see themselves as people who don't belong in this world. This is not their home, they're citizens of another country. What's interesting here is that I think 1 Peter is styled on a Jewish letter to the exiles. If you look at Jeremiah the prophet in the 6th century before Jesus, he writes a letter to, to exiles in Babylon in Jeremiah 29. He tells them to seek the peace and prosperity of the city that they're in, the city of Babylon. And that Letter that Jeremiah sends has all sorts of echoes in 1 Peter. Like the passage we just read live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. This is how you're to live live as exiles who are seeking the peace of the city that you're in, live as aliens or strangers, as people who don't belong. But do good to the people around you, the pagan world that you are in. Um, The difference here is, of course, that this is not a geographical exile that the Christians are experiencing. It's a spiritual exile. Peter's readers are exiles because they've been born again into a living hope, chapter 1, verse 3, into an inheritance kept in heaven for them that can never perish or spoil. They were once citizens where they live. They were once part of the country, once part of the culture, but now they are strangers and exiles there on the margins. And it's important for them to see themselves as exiles, to accept that they are on the margins of society. And it's the same for us. We're to see ourselves as exiles. We don't belong here. And yet, we're to see that we're to do good while we're here. Now, this is a very powerful, I think, way for us to understand our identity in Christ. Exiles, here to do good. Secondly, created and sustained by the gospel. Have a look at chapter 1, verse 23. You've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. It's through the word of God that we've been born again. Um, This is the word that gives gives us life and then goes on giving us life. Uh, Peter's emphasis is that this isn't the enduring word of God. Human ideas, trends, fashions, um, social acceptance, all those things will fade. But the word of God endures. The grass of the field fades, but the word of the Lord Stands forever. Verse 25. And so we need to speak the word to one another, not just to fill our minds with information, but to stir up our affections and our hope in the midst of hostility, our affections for God. Chapter 2, verse 2 Like newborn babies, crave spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. In the word of God, we taste the Lord. In the gospel, we taste that he is good. We see his goodness. So we're to speak the gospel word to one another, to remind one another of the goodness of God, to stir up our affections about him, to keep reminding ourselves of his goodness so that our hearts and our love and our hope thrive in the midst of all that's going on. So that's the second thing. We're created and sustained by the gospel word of God. Thirdly, we're a new community of belonging. We've been born again into a new inheritance and that makes us strangers in the wider culture. We're on the margins, but the fact that we've been born again means we've now entered a new family of belonging, an alternative community where we can find a place and a home. In fact, he uses the word, the word for foreigners that Peter uses is par oikos, which is the Greek. Oikos is the word for household or family. Par is outside or without. So the Christians have become par oikos, outside of the family. And the Roman Empire was viewed as one large family with Caesar as the patriarch. But now Christians are outside of the cultural family. Um, but he says in chapter 2, verse 4, you have now been brought into a spiritual oikos, a new household, a new family. So Christian community is really important because we can now belong somewhere. We can belong with one another in a new community. And notice that the word of God sustains and creates this new community, the enduring life-giving word. So what forms and sustains our community is not our commitment to community per se, but our commitment to the gospel word. Sometimes people have a big emphasis on community and neglect the gospel word. Community then becomes a goal that we're all striving for and it's like a work's righteousness. We're trying to achieve this and create this ourselves. Uh, But it We can't create Christian community ourselves. It's a gift from God through the gospel. And we looked at this from Colossians chapter 3 a few weeks ago. It's not something we achieve, it's given to us in the gospel. The gospel creates the community that we enjoy. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his book Life Together, said Christian community is not an ideal we have to realize but rather a reality created by God in Christ in which we participate. The more clearly we learn to recognise that the ground and strength and promise of all our community is in Christ alone, then the more calmly we'll learn to think about our community and pray and hope for it. So some people have a very romantic view of Christian community and it's all going to be great, we're going to hang out, it's going to be fantastic. And they can place an ideal up here and then they can use that ideal to kind of be a stick to beat other people with because those other people aren't conforming to their idea of what Christian community should be. But here Paul says, no, it's the gospel word <laughs> that creates and sustains and grows our community with each other. Community is given to us as a free gift. And we need to learn to love and enjoy and revel in the community God has given us. And yes, it's not everything we'd hoped for, but let's see that the glass is half full, not half empty. Uh, God is doing a tremendous work among us to bring us together, and we experience so much joy that we ought to we ought to kind of bask in that, kind of, kind of just rejoice. That we have been given one another as a gift. Receive it as a gift. So that's going to be important in the context of a hostile world. And then fourthly and lastly, uh, the fourth principle for mission is a community making God known in the everyday. Peter talks about the purpose of this community that the gospel has formed. In chapter 2 verse 9 he picks up the language of Sinai, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. So Israel was called by God, this is just before the Ten Commandments were given, and they're called to be a royal priesthood. Now priests were those who made God known to the nation and brought the nation of Israel to the point of atonement. And Israel, as a nation, is called to be a royal priesthood. The whole nation is to function in such a way that it teaches all the nations about God and draws all the nations to the, to the point of atonement. It's a missionary mandate right at the beginning of their life. And that's why the Ten Commandments were given, to shape their life so that they would be a light to the nations. The Ten Commandments are missionary in intent. There to be a holy nation, holy as God is holy, distinctive and different, a place where the world can see and know God and what God is like. If we had time, we could trace this idea right through from Abraham, who will bless the nations um, as he teaches his children to walk in the ways of the Lord, Genesis 18 right through to Isaiah, promising that all the nations will stream into Jerusalem as it's lifted up in Isaiah 2, and the light will go out from Israel. Then Jesus, picking up that same language in Matthew 5 to talk about himself as the light of the world and the church, the community that he's established, as now taking on the mantle of Israel, that we as a community, through our life together, are to be a light to the nations, a city on a hill. That's why so many churches are called City on a Hill. This idea that we draw the nations to God through the life that we live together, uh, because our life together shows that God is good and that his reign is good, and that it's wonderful to have God near to us. Deuteronomy 4 says that. Now, the Blue Mountains, people don't necessarily think that God's reign is good, right? Uh, If you go up to people in the street and say, I've got some good news for you, you're not in control of your life, God is in control. That doesn't sound like good news, that sounds like bad news. And that's because as humanity, we've bought into the lie of Satan, that we're better off without God, that we're freer without God that if we depose God and rule ourselves, we'll find freedom. Of course, we end up enslaved. But that's the lie. And the Christian community is called to so live under the word of God, the gospel word, to so live under the reign of God expressed through his word, that the world looks on and sees it's good to know God that it's good to live under God and that God's reign is good news for the world. So Peter recalls all of that in 1 Peter 2.9. He urges them as exiles and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your souls and live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, They may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. He urges them as this new community, as this missional community, this community called to live in obedience to God, live in such a way that God's goodness and the good news of his reign will be made known to the world. Live such good lives in the face of hostility that they see your good deeds and glorify God. And then he unpacks what that means in relationship to the political arena in verses 13 to 17, in the workplace with slaves in verse 18 to the end of the chapter, and then in the home in chapter 3, 1 to 7 with a focus on wives who live with unbelieving husbands because this is about how we live in a hostile, unbelieving world. And then in chapter 3, verse 8 onwards, it's the same context seeking the peace of the city in the face of hostility. And that leads to the famous verse in chapter 3, verse 15. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against you your good behaviour in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Notice that the context of this verse, being prepared to give an answer for the hope that you have, the context of that verse is not individual Christians living a good life and then getting a question from a colleague. No, it's in community because this completes an arc that began back at chapter 2, verse 9. It completes an arc that began back at Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments and even further back with Abraham and the promises to Abraham of God calling a community that will make his goodness and the good news of his reign known in the world. And as they do that in all these different areas of life, uh, then the questions will come. Oh, please give us the reason for the hope that you have. And they're questions about hope because what, uh, it's hope that's creating their different lifestyle. Now, the other thing to notice here is it, this is the context of life as citizens in the workplace and in the family. That is, mission is happening in the context of ordinary life. So evangelism happens in the context of normal, ordinary life where we're living under the reign of God together, living such good lives among people, seeking the peace of the city, living as aliens and strangers, as this community that together, in ordinary life, is making Christ known. So it's through community that mission happens, And through ordinary life, that mission happens. It's community in ordinary life that generates the questions for which the gospel is the only answer. I want you to feel the strength of Peter's emphasis here. He's pushing out the proclamation of the gospel into us being community out in ordinary life. So what this means is that mission involves a multiplicity of activities, sharing meals, helping with chores, hanging out, recreational activities, answering questions that people have, little snippets of gospel truth, conversations that appear to go nowhere. And if you just look at one of those conversations, it doesn't look like missions happening. But if we persevere in prayer... And uh, with a gospel intention, then God in his sovereignty will bring all those little snippets of conversation and all those things that we've involved ourselves in with other people and bring them all together to be effective for mission in people's lives. God is able to do that. What's important, though, in the whole thing is gospel intention, that we're intentional. Otherwise, we're just people doing ordinary stuff. But what we need to do is the stuff that we do anyway, but do it intentionally with prayer, with the intention to share and show the gospel of Jesus. And we live in a much more separated society than Peter's original hearers. I'm reading a book by an Australian doctor who was in Africa, and he says in Africa he stayed with his aunt, who's also from Australia, in a compound of 50 people. That's where he lived and they all lived together and this is in Ethiopia and it was so hot that they all slept outside at night every night and in the courtyard 50 people sleeping together there um, and he said every night you'd hear the murmur of conversation settle and everyone would fall asleep and they all get up in the next, next morning. And he talks about many things in Africa where people live closely with each other And then when he came home to Australia and went to the central coast he was shocked by how alone Australians seemed. The streets seemed empty of people. He noticed that people tended to walk, jog, ride a bike or drive alone with their earplugs in. His boys wanted to meet other children so they went to the local park hoping that other kids would get involved with their soccer game. None of them did. The few that were there kept to themselves. And he said it was just a complete and utter shock to his boys, this whole different, because they have grown up in Africa, this whole different culture that we have here. And the society Peter is writing to is more like the African society than our society. Each house has like 60 to 70 people living in it. And then the next door has the same kind of arrangement. And everyone's life is centred around the marketplace, which is just there in the ancient world. And so Christian community happened right among people, right in the midst. It was impossible to miss how the Christians lived. Our culture isn't like that. And we need to work a little harder to show Christ to the people around us. And we need to find ways to overlap our lives with our neighbours So that they see Jesus among us. So here's a little exercise. List all the things you do every day, every week, every month. Meals, work, walking the dog, hanging out with the children, grocery shopping, watching soccer, working in the garden, lunch at work, whatever it is. Make a list and then for each thing ask, how can I make this a communal activity? How can I do this with someone else in my Christian community? That's not going to work for everyone, obviously, everything, obviously, you know, like taking a shower or something, but there'll be lots of things that I can share with others, like walking the dog, uh, go with someone else, grocery shopping, go with someone in your gospel community. So how can I make it a communal activity? And then secondly, how can I make it a missional activity? In other words, how can I involve an unbeliever in this? Um, Do you want to come over and watch the game with me? Do you want to lift to the shops? Do you want to walk the dog with me? Whatever it is. Something we've done is we're going to lure to look at the gardens. Do you want to come? Or we're having a celebration. Do you want to join us? So how can I make it a missional activity? And then thirdly, how can I make it a gospel activity? In other words, how can I use this as a context, either to encourage my believing friend with the gospel or to share the gospel with my unbelieving friend? We text neighbours Bible verses when things are tough for them. Just simple things to create context to share the gospel in everyday life. Otherwise, our neighbours are never really going to see the gospel lived out in community among them. We're reading a book called Joy for the World. And he says in that book that non-believers need to see the flourishing totality of the Christian life. That is, they need to see the gospel lived out in community and all the joy of that and all the dimensions of that. If they just see you being kind to them, well, they'll just pass that off as, oh, you're a kind person. What they need to do is they need to see the whole community living under the reign of of God through Christ, living in the light of what Jesus has done for them. And seeing what that means, seeing all the dimensionality of that. And that is very compelling. That's when they'll say, ah, God is among you. And that's what we're trying to do. Um, We have this vast resource of the enduring, life-giving Word of God and the Holy Spirit. And the joy of tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. And this gives us endless ideas and endless encouragement to engage with people around us and to be a force for truth and blessing in the world. Amen.